This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Payer Issues Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Matt Isles, President and CEO of AHIP. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Laura, thanks for jo- having me join today. Well, I know we've got a lot to talk about, so we'll dive right in. What are some of the biggest challenges that your members are facing today as COVID-19 continues to surge across the U.S.? It, it is a big challenge right now as we've seen the spread of the variant. I think across the country, you know, if I just step back for a moment, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, we were so focused on how we could accelerate vaccinations through our vaccine community connectors initiative, which was focused on how can we get those uh, vulnerable uh, senior citizens vaccinated quickly? You know, we've been pretty successful there. That initiative has led to more than a 2 million more seniors, especially those in socially vulnerable areas being vaccinated, but we know that there's still so much to do as a country to really continue to expand vaccinations. And and that's a really important area for us focused on the Medicaid population. And then of course, those individuals that haven't been vaccinated. You know, as we look also at um, areas and all of the medical care that was delayed or deferred because of COVID, and now we know in some parts of the country, you know, additional procedures, especially elective ones, are are being uh, pushed off even further. We've been trying to encourage people to get back into their physician's office for regular care, whether it be um, the standard vaccinations, preventive care and treatments. And how can we how can we do that? And we know that there is some hesitancy, um, especially as we've seen the Delta variant sort of spread across the country. But I think that's going to be important. Um, we're looking at what is coming out with respect to guidance around COVID nineteen COVID vaccine boosters. All uh, right, we just saw some recent guidance from FDA and CDC, at least for the portion of the population that is immunocompromised, but we also know that that's probably going to change very quickly as well. And how are we going to make sure that those individuals who are eligible and want to receive a third vaccination, you know, do so? I think maybe just one final piece I'll note is with the spread of the Delta variant, again, testing is really important. And we know that there's an increase in testing and that's completely necessary. But we continue to be concerned about what we've seen by way of testing prices, especially for out-of-network tests. Uh, We've done some additional research that looks at the average cost of testing for out-of-network tests. And in the commercial market, if you you go to a network provider, it's about $130. If you go to an out-of-network provider, we're seeing testing costs that are you know, in excess of $390, $400 for a single test. And we know that those kinds of costs aren't sustainable, especially if that's going to have to continue. So there's a lot for us to work on still. And we know COVID is not yet behind us, but you know, AHIP and our health insurance provider members are committed to do everything that they can to make sure they're doing their part to help end the crisis here. Absolutely. That's really interesting to hear that gap between the, you know, in-network COVID tests and and out-of-network. And thinking about all of those things that Americans need, whether it's the additional testing for one reason or another, or getting their COVID shots, and then eventually the booster shots, how long-term do you think insurance companies will be able to approach covering these costs, but then also understanding that, you know, this is an essential aspect of getting the country back up and running and keeping people safe. And so how do you kind of square that, but also under for us understanding that there are costs associated with that and somebody has to cover them? 
there are costs that have to be covered. And again, if I sort of step back for a moment, and I'll go all the way back now to uh, March of 2020, when really, you know, COVID was just taking over the national psyche because of its spread. You know, our members expressed their commitment to make sure that we were part of the solution, you know, from the beginning. We started with testing and those expanded to, you know, treatment in other areas. It is going to be important to think about how do these costs ultimately work their way through the system um, and what will it mean? Uh, as I mentioned, some of the testing costs, you know, still right now, the government is picking up uh, the cost of the vaccine ingredient price, right? So that's the part that the government's picking up and health insurance providers um, are covering uh, generally the administration cost, you know, with no cost sharing to Anyone who has comprehensive health insurance, if you're in a, an ACA marketplace plan, if you're in employer-sponsored coverage, uh, or if you're in Medicaid, you know, Medicare is a little bit different just in terms of how it's operated there and how um, essentially the Medicare fee-for-service program is picking up all of the costs there. But we do need to look ahead uh, and say what's going to be sustainable. And right now, the you know vaccine costs course, you know, we need to make sure that it's not a barrier to individuals getting access to the vaccine. And I anticipate that, you know, COVID vaccines going forward will likely be covered like all other preventive treatments and services under the Affordable Care Act will be available without cost sharing. That leads me to, you know, what's going to happen with the price of vaccinations long term, and especially the price that gets set by manufacturers once uh, the government's no longer purchasing. Now, we're not in that position yet, uh, but how that will evolve over time, especially if we're going to have to have an annual shot or maybe a booster at some regular basis, it will be really important to make sure that those prices uh, and those costs stay reasonable. Absolutely. That's a really great point. And now I also wanted to ask you about some of the things happening on Capitol Hill. What federal policy changes do you anticipate will be coming up down the pipe in the next year or so? And then what are the conversations like that you're hearing on Capitol Hill about healthcare coverage? Yeah, it's, it's been a very active year for issues with respect to coverage, Laura. And if you just sort of go back to some of the important changes that were included within the American Rescue Plan Act and the changes to the ACA marketplace and the availability of subsidies, the changes with respect to COBRA, right? That was essentially, I'd say, a, you know, a down payment, a, a big part of it. You know, as we look to the rest of the year, uh, we know that the bipartisan infrastructure package has passed the Senate. We still need to see what happens um, in the House. Um, and we know right behind it is the work on the next package with respect to the budget resolution and potential reconciliation, which is a really a, a partisan process and not likely to be a bipartisan process. And we've been really focused on ways that we can continue to strengthen our system of coverage and care, focusing on building uh, upon what's working uh, to really achieve universal coverage. And I just want to be entirely clear, we want every single American to have access to affordable health insurance coverage um, that's focused on value that protects against pre-existing conditions. I mean, that is a, a top priority. You know, when we look at the rest of the year, it's not entirely clear how everything comes together. We know there will be important push around uh, again, the provisions within the American Rescue Plan Act and trying to make some of those provisions permanent for those who rely on coverage in the ACA marketplace. Uh, we need to find ways to 
cover those individuals who live in states that haven't expanded Medicaid. And we'd like to lean in on expanding through the Affordable Care Act and providing access through those types of plans just to because you can get it up you know, very quickly, um, making sure we protect uh, the 27 million Americans who rely on Medicare Advantage plans. Right, That's a very important, significant percentage of Medicare beneficiaries. About 40% of Medicare beneficiaries are in Medicare Advantage plans. Um, and of course, prescription drug coverage and pricing through Medicare Part D and efforts to address the you know, underlying prices of prescription drugs. Um, again, how all of these come together, it's going to be a, a very interesting, challenging fall. And certainly we're going to be engaged every step of the way to make sure that we can do everything that we can to make sure people have access to coverage that you know, serves their health care needs. There's nothing more important. Is, I think the pandemic is having good access to health care, and, and so much of that starts with strong health insurance coverage. That's a really great point. And obviously something that, you know, all Americans are looking at and really wanting to have access to as much as possible. Are you optimistic that these types of initiatives will be able to to go through, especially when you're looking at the bipartisan infrastructure plan and things that require both sides of the aisle to come together? I, I know it can be a challenging to do that, but are you optimistic that these things can get done? I think some important pieces can get done, uh, and whether it will be through budget reconciliation or, you know, some potential other vehicles that might happen uh, or that need to happen. For example, you know, the government uh, needs to be funded so that there isn't, you know, a shutdown at some point. There's the debt limit. So, you know, there's other ways that could happen through bipartisan means. But, you know, exactly what that path looks like going forward, I don't know that anyone really has a a great crystal ball that can tell them uh, exactly how that one's going to unfold. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. Um, how do you see contracts and negotiations between insurers and health systems evolving over the coming year? Obviously, we've talked a lot about what health insurance companies are focused on and in some of the stressors that they have. Looking ahead to their negotiations with health systems and how they're developing additional contracts, what do you see as being points where they can come together and points where there's still a little bit, there's some distance between the two sides? Um, in, in what are you thinking about that? It's a terrific question, Lauren. I've been asked that, you know, a couple of different times in different ways about whether or not we'll see an acceleration uh, of the move towards value-based contracts. You know, as we've seen from the pandemic, you know, those healthcare systems and provider groups that were more reliant on value-based arrangements uh, versus traditional, say, fee-for-service, right, especially given the declines in utilization that we're seeing, certainly those in value-based arrangements fared much better. Uh, and, you know, there are some good reasons to be optimistic about you know, the continued move towards value, but given the disruptions we've, you know, seen across the healthcare system, you know, whether or not, you know, the ability uh, to, um, you know, put in place you know, even more robust arrangements, uh, given all the challenges, <clears throat> excuse me, that the healthcare system continues to face, you know, I'll be optimistic that we'll continue to see those moves. I think, you know, efforts from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation will continue to push those along. You know, there are differences across the country, and we know that each individual health insurance company and individual health system will, you know, need to make their own decisions. But I think the trend longer term will will continue to be there. 
I'll also note that you know, one concern that you know, continues to be seen across the healthcare system uh, from health insurance providers is what we've seen with respect to the continuing impact of consolidation in hospitals and provider groups and health systems with more and more physician groups you know, getting acquired and being brought into health systems and whether or not we're going to see any improvements as a result, or are we just going to see you know, higher prices because of greater market power and, and consolidation, uh, which I think challenges some of the moves towards value-based arrangements. I think there's going to be, we've seen a, an executive order on, on competition from this administration. We know that they're going to be looking not just at certain parts of the economy, but healthcare is one of them. Uh, and I, I think that we'll continue to see movement towards value-based arrangements, but I think, you know, more than ever coming out of the pandemic, it just demonstrates how important it is to move away from, from volume and fee-for-service towards value. Absolutely. And I think dovetailing with that, you know, moving towards value and thinking about what makes the most sense in terms of quality care, as well as, you know, what's going to be most cost effective is, is looking at the side of service. What are you thinking about or, or seeing in terms of um, insurance companies thinking about outpatient surgery um, and, and how that relates to what they're doing with hospitals versus some of the other outpatient settings? Do you have any insight into that? I mean, I think there will continue be, to be, a, you know, a move out of the in-hospital to outpatient centers. And I think the question is, are you going to be able to uh, reimburse? Are you going to be required to reimburse it at higher rates? Or are you going to be able to take advantage of some of the efficiency of, uh, of lower payment rates when you're not delivering in a hospital? I know our, our members have been very supportive of so-called site-neutral payments we hope to see continued movement around there, but there's a lot of moving parts uh, and, and things differ. Uh, I think like with everything, healthcare is local. It differs, you know, by geography and, and what's happening from a local uh, market dynamic. That makes a ton of sense. Well, Matt, I appreciate you being here today. I have one more question for you before we wrap up our discussion. What are the top three trends that you're following in healthcare today? Sure. So coming out of COVID, you know, we've talked about a number of different trends. We've touched on on a couple of them today, you know, in, increased adoption of value-based care and expanding our system of, of coverage. I think three others that are really important to note and an area where I know there's a deep level of commitment is what can we do to accelerate and improve the drive towards health equity Certainly, COVID has laid bare the really tremendous inequities across our healthcare system in different populations that have been disproportionately impacted for decades. I think increasing the drive towards health equity. Second area uh, around extended use of telehealth. Again, that's been an area that has grown so dramatically. You know, what that ultimately looks like long term and the mix of in-person versus telehealth visits. Uh, but clearly, we're not going back to the way that the healthcare system was prior to COVID. And then I think the final note uh, or area that I'll note is really the growing awareness of the importance of mental health and its connection to overall health, the drive towards improved mental health care and you know, leveraging telehealth and other types of services but really the connection and really how those individuals that are suffering from mental health challenges are suffering not just from 
poor mental health, but really uh, lesser overall health? And how can we really make sure that we are integrating physical health with mental health and, and addressing the challenges that so many people are facing? Absolutely. Matt, thank you so much for going through that with us. I you know, really appreciate it. And in terms of just looking at the mental health aspect of it um, and, and connecting people, whether it's via telehealth or bringing that all for the companies that are have some great ideas out there, how do you see that trending? How do you see the mental health aspect of it um, really becoming more part of the integrated overall care of, of the different members as insurance companies kind of refocus and, and think about their products in the future? Yeah, they, and it cuts across all product lines, Laura, right? So this is not just uh, about the commercial market or about Medicaid. I mean, this is about Medicare beneficiaries who have disproportionately been impacted. If you think about the social isolation <clears throat> and loneliness that they faced um, as uh, you know, the concerns about COVID, how that could impact their physical health. People who've been you know, stuck working from home in difficult circumstances, maybe with school-aged children, and how their employers and their health insurance providers can help support them from a mental health perspective, addressing issues with respect to anxiety and making sure that people are focused on self-care. And, and for a long time, there has been a significant recognition in the Medicaid area of the connection between mental health. I mean, I think products will be different. I think services will be different. I think how we use technology and really integrate all of these pieces throughout the way that healthcare is delivered, really starting with the youngest ages, you know, all the way up through uh, the elderly, I think is going to evolve very rapidly over the coming years. Matt, thank you so much for being here today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and we look forward to having you back again soon. Thanks for having me, Laura. Really appreciate it.